0: Uh, we're going to see Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. We're going to see the preparing the way of the king. And so we're going to be introduced to this John the Baptist uh, ministry. Let me let me just pray for us before we, we look at this. Let, let's pray now. Father, the scriptures do not, they don't have any ambiguity about the worth and the authority and the the power and the majesty of the Christ who was crucified, buried, raised, and ascended. And so we're thankful this morning for songs that, that echo the scriptures and for scriptures that make plain that Jesus is worthy of all, that, that our lives are, are to be spent in allegiance to him. And so we long for the day when when he will return and his rule and reign will be fully established and his enemies and those who oppose him will be completely under his feet. And even now, part of our our hearts ache and long for that return. And so we pray this morning as your people, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly, come soon. Um, We long for your rule and reign to be established Completely, And we long to be with you physically in your presence and have the, the things of this world and anxiety-inducing situations and fears and, and all the things we struggle with, we long to have those uh, cease to be. And we know that when you come, all those won't matter anymore. We will know you fully, we'll be known fully, and we'll be in perfect fellowship with you and one another. And so we pray for that. But But in the meantime, until... You return as you tarry. We pray that you'd help us to, to live lives of worship, that, that we would honor you with our hearts and thoughts and minds, not just on Sundays when we gather, but, but as we go home and as we wake and as we sleep and as we go along the way throughout the day. Help us to honor you because you are worthy. Help us in, in, in the study of this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 3, as I said, this we're going to be introduced to, to John the Baptist, who, um, in case you don't know, he's different than the John who wrote the Gospel of John. So, so I don't want to assume that, that everyone knows that. This is a different John. There's, there's a couple of Johns in the Bible. So this John the Baptist that we're going to be introduced to is not the same one who wrote John's Gospel. I remember the story of... Uh, someone who once said he was in a Bible study, he was new to Christianity, and he was reading the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, there's the account where John is beheaded. And he unassumingly says, well, how's how's the rest of the Gospel written if he's beheaded? And and the people there laughed at him. And so I want to be careful that this is this is things that maybe if you've grown up in the church, you take for granted. But, but the John here is not this John that we'd find later writing the Gospel of John or the letters. But this is John the Baptist who is understood in light of of the the testimony of Scripture, of of what came before. And he is the one that immediately precedes the ministry, the appearance of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so Matthew's gospel does it, Mark does it, Luke does it, John does it. All four gospel writers immediately mention John the Baptist before this public appearing of Jesus and his baptism. And so they do so because what we can see from that is that John is connected to Jesus. He can't be separated from. John's ministry and his message can't be separated from Jesus. He was there, and he is to be understood in light of what immediately, who immediately precedes him, which is Jesus. And so John has to be understood in what comes after him. And I think we're pretty good with understanding that. We think, well, John the Baptist came, and then after him came Jesus. So we can say, oh, he's, he's preparing the way. He's preparing the way for the Messiah, and we can get that, but what, what Matthew does here, what I want us to, to, def, to understand as equally important as understanding what came after him, and Jesus was what came before him. Because what Matthew wants us to understand is that John the Baptist has roots in the Old Testament. That John is the, the fulfillment of this long line of Old Testament prophets, and John's ministry and message is understood in light of what came before him. So just like Jesus has to be understood in light of the Old Testament, John does also. And so we're going to see that and in an example or illustration that may convey this. I'm kind of a squeamish person, so I tested it on myself, and I think it's okay. Um, but, but think about a stitch, when you have a cut or a laceration and you have to have a stitch to join these two sides and the stitch functions to unite them, to join them together and eliminating the separation. So it prevents infection and all the stuff from getting in. It closes it, but the stitch serves the purpose of bringing the two sides together to form a one unified surface again. And in doing that, after it accomplishes the purpose, the, the stitch, now some stitches are still removed. You have to go back and get them removed, but some stitches, I mean, they dissolve. It's kind of strange, but they, they serve their purpose and they're gone. They don't, they don't have a function anymore. The stitch, it's not about the stitch. It's about the function and purpose. And so I think John the Baptist in this sense is functioning somewhat like a stitch. He's serving as the connector between the old and the new. And what he does in connecting the old and the new is there's, there's a, a heartbeat of his ministry and message that, that connects what was before and, all, and what would come after, which is namely the call to repent and return to the Lord. That, that's certainly part of the Old Testament prophetic call, and that's certainly going to be part of the call of Jesus. And so here's this, this medium between the old, old Testament, the prophets, and the coming of this new age in the person and work of Christ. And so, John the Baptist is an essential message for us to hear. His message and ministry we ought to heed, because though John would come and go, his message would be continued by the person and work of Jesus. And so, his message deserves our attention. So, let's read John chapter or Matthew chapter three, verses one through twelve, and what we'll see that the ministry of John. So, John chapter or Matthew chapter three, beginning in verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he was preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food, what he ate, was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, but when he, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you, says John, with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, this is the ministry and message of John the Baptist. So as we work through, we're going to start verses one through four. The first point we're going to cover in these verses, we're going to see that the ministry of John the Baptist. So, so what is his ministry? How does, how does Matthew paint the picture of John and his his ministry? And then the second point that we'll spend time looking at it is in verses five through twelve, and that's the message. So his ministry and his message. Those are the two points that we'll work through um, as as we see this, this character and understand what, what his ministry was and, and what his message was. So, so first, start there, verses one through four, the ministry. So as we look to the ministry of John the Baptist in this passage, there's I, there's just three points, three things that, that I think help us understand his ministry, namely three things that connect John to what came before in the Old Testament. Okay, so here's the three things. We'll, we'll walk through them one at a time. First, the location of his ministry. So notice there. Verse 1, in those days, now, now Matthew's, Matthew's kind of vague about this. this. This is not immediately preceding what just happened. Remember, Jesus w- was just a boy at the end of chapter 2. So in those days, this is just a, a vague time reference. In those days that, that Jesus was to come, so this is probably 25 years from the end of chapter, 20, uh, end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3. So in those days, John comes and he's preaching. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the city center, but he's in Jerusalem. Or he's in the wilderness of Judea. So so his ministry is taking place in the wilderness. Now, maybe your translation says the term desert. Not not likely what what we tend to think of with desert. If he's baptizing in a river, a desert, we don't think of a desert with a river. So more more apt here, a better description is the wilderness. This is an unhospitable place, inhospitable. In fact, there are just all these these sects, these people who want to separate, who lived out in the wilderness. Think about maybe some of the, the faraway places of of Tennessee or somewhere where, where no one lives, but people go to get away. We used to live in Surrey County, and, and people went to Surrey because they didn't want to be on the peninsula. Right? So this is John is in the wilderness, an undesirable location, and that's where his ministry begins. And I think what Matthew wants us to know, this is a geographical nat- nature, nature of his ministry, so people go out only to see him. They're not there on, on a trip and say, oh, this is a good, good scenic stop for us. This is an attraction. Let's go see John. No, they go out for the specific purpose of seeing him because he's in the wilderness. But also, in light of what we saw last week, this is a theologically significant location because the wilderness in the Old Testament story marked the place where the people of Israel began as a nation. That, that's where he calls Abraham. He says, go. You're a wanderer, go. And so here, locating Matthew is locating John and his beginning here in the wilderness. And we'll see in Isaiah chapter 40, we'll, we'll see how this plays into John and his ministry in the wilderness because not only is this, this location significant, but this location is tied to his identity. Look there at verse 3. He's not only in the wilderness, but he's the voice in the wilderness. That's his identity. That's, that's how we are to understand his ministry. His identity is the voice in the wilderness, Verse three says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So one of the other gospels, John says this quote about himself. It seems like Matthew is making this quote about him, but some versions even have this as part of John's quote. The point is, John is the voice in the wilderness. Well, who's the voice in the wilderness? This is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And in 40 verse three of Isaiah, the, the wilderness voice is a voice that's calling out to, the, to those in exile. They've been exiled to Babylon. And in Isaiah 40, the voice is saying, God is coming. The voice is preparing the way. The Lord is coming. He's going to lead you in your exodus, this new exodus through the wilderness from Babylon back to the Holy Land. And so the voice in the wilderness is calling the exiles to come back. And what Matthew wants you to know about John is he is calling to those in exile and saying, the exile is over. Now, the, the, the one is coming to say, hey, come on, prepare the way the the return to the promised land is at hand i think matthew like he like like we said last week he wants us to understand john the baptist in light of the story in the old testament of exile and return matthew wants us to see the ministry of john as a prophetic ministry that's preparing the way And what's interesting, because we read Matthew 3 in John's ministry, the the, the one that's being prepared the way for is the Messiah, and we think, oh, it's the Messiah. Well, his first readers, Isaiah 40, chapter 3, is not a messianic saying, hey, this is the voice that shows up is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40 is, the Lord is coming. Yahweh himself is coming to to deliver you from exile, to, to bring you back. And so when John is identified as the voice preparing the way for the Lord, It's it's much more significant than simply saying, oh, the Messiah is coming. One commentator says, Christian interpretation has for for so long taken it for granted that John's role was to prepare the way for the Messiah that it's easy to miss the radical significance of Matthew's choice of text. The coming one in, in Isaiah 40 verse 3 is not the Messiah, but God himself. So this is a Christological statement that Matthew is making about who Jesus is. And so John the Baptist is being presented as the one who should be understood as the one whose appearance marks the end of exile and this this return. John is the voice in the wilderness who's going to be immediately followed by the Lord himself. So he's preparing the way. Well, the last thing that Matthew does, just not the location of his ministry or his identity in his ministry, but also just simply the physical appearance is something that we ought to note. Look at verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, it, whether, whether, this is, um, whether this matters or not, I, I did come across the, the fact that locusts are still eaten in some parts of the Middle East and in, in some places. Maybe, maybe you could try that sometime. But, but he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't think there's an Old Testament a reference specifically to that. I think that the point is this man, this voice in the wilderness, removed himself into the wilderness for this ministry. And he's living off of wild honey and locusts. He's, he's a simple man. Maybe we have a Leonard Skinner fan in here. He's a simple man, right? So he, he's just living off the land. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't need to go to the city. He is, he's out there, set himself apart for this ministry. And so his diet doesn't appear to have a specific Old Testament reference, but the attire certainly has an Old Testament reference. He's, he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. And so, so he has a, a, a coat or a, 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 whatever he's wearing, his, his outfit is of camel's hair, and he has this leather belt tied around his waist. And this, I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's, that it's an explicit reference to the prophet Elijah. So, so you can write this down and go back and read. This. this is a fascinating story. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, in the Old Testament, there's the story of the evil king Ahaziah. And so he calls for this word. from. So I guess he, he falls. He has an accident. He wants to know if he's going to recover. So he sends his men to go to this pagan god to say, hey, see if I'm going to recover from this sickness. See if I'm going to get better. And so, so the, these men are sent from this evil king. He's a king in Israel, but he, he sends this convoy to this pagan god and Elijah stops this convoy and he says, hey, why are you going to the pagan god? Is it because you've stopped worshiping the God of Israel? And so it's an indictment. But, but Elijah says, this, you shouldn't be sending to seek word from the God of Ekron, but instead you should be asking the Lord himself. But the fact that you're not shows the sad state of Israel. So Elijah sends the messengers back saying to the king, hey, you, you, he's not gonna get better. He's gonna die. And so they get back to the king, and the king's like, wait a minute, why are you back so soon? You, you didn't make it all the way to, to where you're supposed to go. How are you back so soon? And they said, well, this guy stopped us, and he said, you're never going to get better. And he said something about we should be worshiping the, the, the God of Israel or something. And, and at that point, Ahaziah, the king, says, well, who was this man? And this is fascinating. He, they say he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So that's what they say. That's the guy. That's how they describe him. And immediately this evil king says, ah, it's Elijah. It's Elijah the Tishbite. So they know from his appearance that he is the one who is all about the word from the Lord. And that's a fascinating story because this king would send two more convoys and Elijah would actually have fire called down and, and consume them. And it's finally the, the third time the captain says, don't do it. Just, 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 just come back with us. Don't, don't destroy us. But this, this, this garment of hair and this leather belt is, is Matthew's way. So John, is, as, as wearing this, is, is very much saying, I am in the line of Elijah. I'm the last in this line of Old Testament prophets. In fact, later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 11, Matthew will say that John is Elijah who was to come. So he's identified with Elijah in his ministry, but also in his attire. That's from Malachi 4, which we'll see when we get there which was that Elijah was coming before the great day of the Lord. And Jesus says, Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. And so our point here is simply recognizing John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is rooted in what came before. He can't be understood without that context. He comes as one of the prophets, the, the greatest of the prophets, because he was the last of them that would prepare the way for the Lord himself to come. So it's not a prophet anymore. It's the Lord himself coming. And John gets the privilege of preparing that way. And so it's his location, his identity, and his appearance that all point to his ministry. That doesn't tell us, knowing about his ministry and his, his context doesn't tell us the message. So what's his message? That's what we move to second. The message there, verses five through 12. So I realize chapter, or verse five is kind of a weird break, but I didn't know where to put baptism because baptism was part of his ministry, but, but I think it was just as equally as much a part of his message. Because baptism is connected to his message. His message was that of repentance, and, and part of the response of re- re- heeding that response and part of repenting was being baptized. And so they're connected in his message. So, so there's not a way in which you re- respond to his message and you aren't baptized. And so that's why I put, I put that break there, because I think baptism is part of his message. And so looking through verses five through 12, I just want to draw your attention to three things concerning his message Three things we see from this. First thing we see is that John's message was universal. Now, this is all there, 5 through 12. And this is probably the most radical aspect of John's message. So John's call for repentance and and to be baptized, it was a universal call. And what I mean is it's non-discriminatory. So it's a message that John says needs to be heeded by Jews and Gentiles. And so when we read verses 5 and 6, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him to be baptized in the River Jordan. That's shocking. Because there's Jews going out to be baptized. Now there's a lot of discussion and debate surrounding the origin of John's baptism. Where did this come from? And maybe I'll say more about this next week. Uh, but, but I don't actually think there's anything exactly like his baptism before. I think that's what's unique about his ministry. I think that's the point, However, at this time, as John is appearing on the scene, there was this Jewish practice, a lot of people say this is where it came from, but this Jewish practice of of ritual washing or baptism, some would maybe say. But this ritual washing was was this Jewish practice where if you were a non-Jew, and you went to synagogue or you had a friend that told you about the God of Israel, about Yahweh, and you said, I want to follow him, I want to keep his law, I want to to do all I'm supposed to do, I want to come to your synagogue, then they would be required, the Gentiles would be required to to go through this ritual washing because it was washing off the the Gentile filth and then making them pure and part of God's people and holy so they could be part of God's covenant community. Remember, this is all old covenant, but it's still a practice at this time. And so this is an initiatory rite. This is part of what you do to be part of God's people at this time. But this process or, or this ritual was only to be engaged in by those who were not Jewish. In other words, if you're Jewish, you didn't have to do it because you're already pure. You're already clean. You're already part of God's chosen people. You already had Abraham as your father. You were good. And so when John comes and calls for repentance and baptism, and he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Jews alike. Gentiles alike, like the first Jew shows up like, wait, am I supposed to come or not? He's like, yes, everyone, everyone come. It's shocking. And it's shocking that so many people heed his warning and and go out to hear him. And they respond by repentance and confessing their sins and being baptized. And so they are not only going out to see what's going on, but at the end of verse six, they are being baptized by him in the River Jordan, and, and in doing so, they're, they're confessing their sins. That's the prerequisite. They're, they're going out to him, confessing sins, and, and they're being baptized. And what's fascinating is you have all these Jewish and Gentile, we assume there's, there's both, but you have at least a, 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 a portion of these Jewish people going out to the wilderness. They're not going to the temple. They're not going to the high priest. They're going to a voice in the wilderness and being baptized, saying, this has something to do with my relationship with the Lord. I'm listening to the prophet. I'm not going to the temple one commentator says, and I think this is, this is powerful, he says, here is no rabbi reasoning and giving options. Here's no priest leading a ritual. Here's no scribe prescribing adherence to a set of rules. John speaks with a thunderous voice demanding a new relationship with God. So he's saying, don't go to the temple. Come out here. God is speaking here. I mean, think about the context here. The Lord's been silent for 400 years and out of the wilderness comes this prophetic voice calling for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, to respond and to get ready. The Lord is on the move. This is an indictment about what had become of the Jewish religion at that time. But this is the voice in the wilderness calling, and he's calling for everyone. You're not, you're not safe. You're not good if you're Jewish. You're not good if you're Gentile. Everyone is called to, to prepare the way to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. It's not just that it's a universal call. Notice it's also a comprehensive call. And comprehensive in the sense that it's a call for the whole person to respond. And here's where we see the the main point of his message is that of repentance. His his first words recorded there in in, in verse 2 is repent. Repent. It's a call for repentance. And and as as we see in verses 5 through 12, it's a thorough whole person repenting. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. This idea of this holistic repentance is, is, helps clarify this interaction in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, he, he's baptizing, he sees some Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism. And he says to them, you brutal vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's coming? And so you have this, this, these two groups of Jewish leaders. And, and what we know from other evidence in the New Testament, these are two sides that are often at, in, at odds with one another. They don't agree on a whole lot. But here, they both together are coming out. Maybe they're sent by the Sanhedrin or or by this larger group who says, hey, go see what's happening. It doesn't doesn't say whether they're coming out to be baptized or they're just coming to observe. I I don't think it's clear. But what is clear is that as soon as John sees them, he addresses an issue with them coming to him. He calls them a brood or a group of children, offspring of vipers of poisonous snakes, see? And so he's in, it's an indictment of them. You're poisonous in, in what you teach and what you represent as Sadducees and Pharisees in this law and this religion and this relationship to God, this approach and how people are made right. It's poisonous. Jesus would give them harsh words also, but John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you? Who warned you of the wrath to come? And in verse 8, this is the crux of the issue. I think we can see that they're coming just to kind of do away with, with, with the, the, the potential they might be wrong. But there's an issue there because verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, the issue isn't that they've come out to be baptized. I don't think he would turn them away. If they were genuinely coming to be baptized and to to heed his message and to get ready for the Messiah, the issue is that they'd come out without having shown any concern or interest in the cost of repentance or what was being asked of them. John is calling to to come out to John and heed his word, to to get ready for the kingdom, to get ready for the Messiah, required nothing less than the total renovation of one's life. And these leaders come out thinking, if they're coming out to be baptized at least, they're thinking they can just go through the motions and be saved from the wrath to come. I can just go see that guy and make sure I check that box, make sure I'm safe. And John says, in essence, you couldn't be more wrong. You see, repentance, the main point of John's message was a call to universal transformation, comprehensive life change. It's it's the idea of a complete turnaround. So It's the idea that you're going one way and you repent and you turn completely and, and go the other way, the opposite way. So a lot of people, maybe you heard this, the idea of repentance. People say, well, it's just a mindset. You just have to change your mind about sin. And that leads to, to really, really unhealthy views of the Christian life because it's more than just a mind change. It's, it's total. You can say, well, I changed my mind. But if your life doesn't change and you didn't really change your mind in terms of the biblical teaching of what repentance is, it's a, a total life. It's comprehensive. And John's ministry is preparing the way for Jesus. And he wants to get people ready to, to give those who would hear a category of repentance that would make understanding Jesus' call more comprehensible. So Jesus says, uh, Leave everything and follow me. Take up your cross, die yourself and follow me. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that guy John talked about something like that about dying to self, about confessing my sin and, and getting ready for the Messiah. Okay, I'm ready. So, so John's preparing the way, and it's this, this, this total transformation, it's comprehensive. You see, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they, they lacked fruit in keeping with repentance. They come to John without any sorrow, without any brokenness, without any recognition that they needed to change. They they just just went to get wet. Which is why John confronts them so directly. Who told you to come? You don't know what you're doing here. You have no right to be here. You're not ready for this. It's not what you think it is. I think we see more behind their lack of qualification in verse nine. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our, our father. So, so we see that these, these, these leaders are saying to themselves, oh, we're good because Abraham's our father. Which, which is another way of saying, we're good because we're Jewish. And John says, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, probably looking around in the wilderness, you see all these stones? God's able to raise up children for Abraham from them. He doesn't need you. See, these Jewish leaders, they didn't think they had any reason for repentance or confession of sins, primarily because they were Jewish. They are trusting their their background, their their history, their past. They probably thought, hey, we're children. God can't fulfill his promises without including us. We're kind of part of the plan. We're we're good. We're safe. We don't need to do anything. I think John wants them to know they're severely underestimating the power of God. John's saying, God doesn't need you. It's not primarily about the nation of Israel. I think that's what John's saying. I think that's what Jesus would say. It's not primarily about ethnic Israel. It's about what God is doing in their midst that that has been brought about by the process and preservation of Israel, but it's about what is coming now in the person and work of Jesus. It's about the true identity of the children of Abraham. It's about the one who's coming, who, who Matthew wants us to know is the true Israel. And so it's not about ethnic identity. The kingdom, this new covenant, it's about your relationship to the Son, the true Israel. And those who are ready for the Messiah are those whose lives are marked by repentance, whose whose lives bear fruit in keeping with repentance, humility, transformation. And John's message is that a failure to respond correctly, a failure to repent thoroughly, is to be in danger of God's wrath and judgment. And he wants these these Jewish leaders to know that this danger, this potential reality of judgment is just as real for you as it is for the Gentile who doesn't repent. Notice 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a message of judgment, which leads to the third and final thing to notice about John's message, which is that John's message was was kind of two-sided, that there's two sides to this message. So, so there's this side, that we see there in verse 10, this, this, this side of, of judgment and wrath and fire. And so central to John's message is, "The kingdom's at hand, so you better get ready, because with the kingdom comes judgment and wrath. So John announces the coming of the Lord, which would bring with it judgment. And so this stitch-like ministry ends the science of the Lord and announces the Lord's intervention in time and history. And this intervention had long been prophesied and anticipated by the prophets. And this intervention was going to be, have a positive side, but it also was going to have a negative side. So, so the coming of the Lord and this deliverance was going to be salvific. There's going to be salvation, but there's also going to be judgment. And so this hope of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, was going to have this hope that God's going to save his people, but also he's going to destroy his enemies. You see the positive and negative, and it's all going to be in the coming of the Lord. And so John is saying, it's here. Don't just think you're going to, the only hope is is salvation. There's also a a great danger. There's judgment. I mean, this idea is clear from Malachi chapter 3, one one of the the other Old Testament passages that that the gospel writers use to to help us understand John, the Baptist. But in Malachi chapter 3, there's this idea of the Lord's going to come, and he's going to come near in judgment. I think that's verse 5 of Malachi 3. But also this, he's going to come near and, and purify and refine. So, so there's this positive, this, this positive side, but there's also this negative side. When the Lord comes near, both are going to be present. Both sides. And so John, as the forerunner to the coming of the Lord, emphasizes both of these. He emphasizes both sides. So we just saw the emphasis on coming judgment and the cutting down and throwing in fire, the trees that don't bear fruit. That's verse 10, but also look at verse 12. This idea of this Messiah, this greater one coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and he'll gather his wheat into the barn to safety, to protection, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so again, these last verses, John is saying, okay, I'm here, I'm a messenger of the Lord, I'm preparing the way, but the one that's coming, he's, he's the one you wanna pay attention to. He's greater, he's better, he's superior. So he, he's, he's, he's comparing himself with Jesus and showing the superiority of Jesus. And he wants to make the point, I can't even, I can't even hold his sandals, and right? I'm not even wanted to be a servant of this one, that's how great he is. But when he comes, there is going to be a great separation there's going to be a great separation that the Messiah is going to bring about, the, the, the greater one. The Messiah is going to have this winnowing fork. So this is an analogy that would have been well known. So you have all this wheat mixed with chaff, this good and bad that can be used for, for food or, or for nothing. And to separate, you had this winnowing fork and, and you'd throw it in the air. And as the breeze came, the, the worthless stuff, the chaff would just be blown away. And the wheat would be heavier and it'd fall and you'd collect it and that, that'd be for safekeeping. It'd be secure. So, so it'd be separated, put into the barn, And then there's chaff, this stuff that was useless. It'd either be blown away, but but the stuff that wasn't blown away would just be gathered and and be burned because it was useless, it was worthless. And John is saying the Messiah is coming and that's what's going to happen when he comes. When he brings the kingdom, that's what's going to happen. I think it's fair to say the kingdom of God, in John's opinion and understanding, as, as well as with Jesus, it's a discriminatory kingdom. The kingdom of God, it makes discriminations or a discrimination. And discrimination, the the, the way that people are separated is are you fit for the kingdom or are you unfit for the kingdom? If you're fit, you're brought in and you're safe and secure. If you're unfit, you're burned with unquenchable fire. You're you're judged, you're destroyed. That's what John is saying. This is the negative side. I think John is the the precursor saying, hey, if you're unfit for my baptism, you're definitely not going to be fit for the baptism of the greater one. You're going to be separated out and burned with fire. I think that's that's the focus of fire there. John's John's message is is that fire, in the negative sense, it, it, it consumes, it burns up, it judges, and it's unquenchable. If you don't repent and get ready, you're, you're not going to escape the wrath to come, John is saying. The, you better get ready because I'm here proclaiming, and then one after is coming, and, and, and that, that's, that's your call to action. So either repent and get ready or face judgment of fire. But, but notice there's also a positive side. John's message isn't only of judgment. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. So here again, here's this contrast. Here's what I'm doing, John. says, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, who's sand I'm not worthy to carry. And what's he gonna do? He will baptize or flood you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so there's a contrast. Now a lot of discussion and debate are had here about what John means. Specifically, as it relates to the experience or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, is John saying that the, that, that the Messiah is going to come, that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit with fire? And so, a lot of people say, well, this is a, a twofold baptism of the Spirit. Now, some people say, no, 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 John is saying that, that the Holy Spirit's going to come on those who repent, but fire is going to come on those who don't repent. And I don't think either of those are right. I think when we look at the experience of believers later after this, it misses the point. It's reading back into this what John is trying to say. I think John's point is really clear. I think if we step back and recognize the context of John his ministry, understanding the Old Testament prophets that came before, as he's highlighting the superiority of Jesus over him, John wants to emphasize the superior, superiority of his baptism but it's not uh, a ritual rite baptism that John is highlighting here. It's not this early church baptism here. The baptism of John is pointing to a greater baptism that's gonna come with the Messiah. And this greater baptism, what John highlights is this promise of this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that was promised beforehand that's gonna come in the messianic age. The Spirit is gonna mark the new age. And John is saying, he's coming and the new age is here. And when the spirit accompanies this one, you're going to know he's the Messiah because the spirit is the marker of this new covenant ministry. So Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel all point forward to a day when the spirit and his activity would be poured out on God's people. And it's a new covenant. And it's a a prophecy, a forward-looking promise that was made in the old. And John is saying it's here. I'm baptizing with water, but there's, there's a greater baptism. It's the baptism that the Old Old Testament looked forward to, and that's coming with the Messiah. And so the Messiah, John wants them to know, he's not going to perform merely an external water baptism for repentance. I'm doing that. That's necessary. But it's going to be an effective baptism of the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to mark the ministry of the Messiah and this distinguishing mark of the ministry of the Messiah the spirit that will accompany his ministry is a ministry of purification of sanctification of refinement which is exactly what Malachi 3 said would happen when the Lord came near and so John's preparatory and symbolic baptism will soon give way to an effective baptism and John points to the purifying effect of the Messiah's work, which will make effective that return to holiness of the people of God, which John's water baptism could only symbolize. And so it's as, as though John is saying, hey, fire's coming, and how you respond to the Messiah and his ministry, you're either going to have the refining fire of the Holy Spirit, who's going to refine and purify and make you holy, or you're going to receive the fire of judgment, so I think that's why, I think, I think spirit and fire, I don't think they're separate things here. I think it's the Holy Spirit fire, or the fire of the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's meant to symbolize what the Spirit is going to do in the new covenant ministry of Jesus. The coming of the Messiah would bring about a new age, a new covenant, and it would be marked by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's, it's specifically mentioned fire because of this two-sided nature of John's message in the coming of the kingdom. The Messiah is going to bring about the experience with fire. It's either you're going to respond and you're going to be purified and refined by the fire of the Holy Spirit, or you're going to refuse to respond. The other side of the coin is you're going to refuse to respond and you're going to face the fire of judgment. And so for those who would be baptized, who would follow John's baptism, they certainly would look for the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, they would respond to him and they would be baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit which is simply a way to describe the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in his new covenant ministry, which we would see played out in the book of Acts. What's fascinating is is that this this practice of baptism is not really present as Jesus is on the earth, or at least it's not mentioned. So it's John leading up, there's baptism. Then Jesus is here, and he's carrying out his ministry. He's crucified, buried, and raised since his Holy Spirit. And then we have Christian baptism being practiced, at least recorded as practiced. So we'll say more about that next week. But, But just think about when we consider the context here, in the Old Testament, the Israelites would almost always, almost always when confronted with their sin, the people would say, hey, we're sorry. We're going to do better. We're going to make it right. We'll follow. We'll obey. We'll return to the Lord. And there's this cycle because it never lasted. They always didn't do what they said. And so the Old Testament Israelites, they lacked the holiness that was required. And John steps on the stage and says, the Messiah is coming. And with the Messiah is going to be a new covenant ministry. And the new covenant ministry is going to be marked by holiness, not because you're going to finally get your act together, but because it's going to be accompanied by God himself in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who's going to bring about the holiness and bring about a change of heart, conversion. So that's John's point here. Get ready. The Messiah is coming. The day of the Lord is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That's the message of John the Baptist. Again, Lord, we'll say more about this next week. But just as we leave this text, I just just want to end with two questions. Two questions that I think that, that, that John's audience would have felt pressed on them. I think Matthew's original audience would have felt pressed on them. And I think we are right to feel pressed on us. So the two questions are simply this. First, have I repented? Have I repented? Both John and Jesus after him would preach repentance as necessary for entering the kingdom. If you wanna be right with God, if you wanna be part of God's family, if you wanna be loved by God, accepted by God, repentance is necessary. You don't get in the kingdom without repenting. And so the question is simply to ask, have I repented? Until the sinner turns from self and sin and idolatry to God, There can be no part in the kingdom of God. There can be no forgiveness. There's no hope. So repentance is necessary. And again, repentance here is turning wholly and completely from sin to God. And this repentance is necessary for entrance into God's kingdom. If you don't get in without, you don't get into the kingdom without recognizing your need for forgiveness. You're recognizing that you lack the holiness necessary. And so I would simply ask have you repented? The message of John and the ministry of Jesus both demand a response. The coming of the kingdom, the ministry of Jesus establishes a fork in the road. You repent or you don't. And so so I would simply say, have you repented? This is the call to you today. I know there's people here who have not repented in this sense. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your past is. The call to you is to repent, to turn from sin and self and to turn to God. And so this is your warning. Heed the Baptist. Not the one at the pulpit, the one in the passage. Heed him, repent. Acceptance, free forgiveness comes to those who repent. So repent, turn. If you don't, be warned that judgment is coming. You will be consumed with fire. You will be burnt with an unquenchable fire forever. That's, this is an eternal situation and decision. And so you should feel the weight of, have you repented? I don't care how old you are, if you're a boy and a girl, have you repented? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you turned from sin into Christ to be accepted by him? That's the call on you. Talk to your mom and dad. Talk to your Sunday school teacher. Talk to me or Pastor Will. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to repent like this. We don't want you to spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus. There's a cost for refusing to repent. So that's the first, sec- first question. The second question is simply, is my repentance bearing fruit? I mean, I think it's pressing for those of us here who've already repented, or at least believe we've repented in the way I've just described, and simply ask, is my repentance bearing fruit? John and Jesus later understand that true repentance bears fruit. It does, repentance bears fruit. I mean, think about this. Apple trees produce what? Apples. Now, they're not always the healthiest apples. They're not always the prettiest apples. Not always the biggest apples. But they're still apples. They're imperfect, but they're apples. An apple tree bears apples. Now, bearing apples doesn't make an apple tree an apple tree. Right? So, so, so when, when it makes an apple, it's like, oh, now it's made itself an apple tree. It's not like it's neutral, and then it's like, oh, I, I want to bear this, so now I'm an apple tree. No, it's an apple tree, and it's DNA from its beginning, it has to be an apple tree before it can bear apples. But the bearing of apples confirms it is indeed an apple tree. And I think this analogy is helpful for thinking about repentance. And it's fruit. Christians bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you've, if you've turned from sin and put your faith in Christ, you are safe and secure, right? Confess with the mouth, believe in the heart Jesus the Lord, you'll be saved. No condemnation for those who are united to Christ by faith. There's safety there. But the Christian life bears fruit in keeping with that initial repentance. And so a Christian life shows evidence of a transformed heart, of conversion. Because the reality is, you either have been converted or you aren't. And a way that you tell is, what fruit are you bearing? You're either an apple tree or you're not. And so I think it's just helpful to ask the question is your repentance bearing fruit? Because I'm afraid that, that a lot of people who, who claim to be Christians, they come to church, they go through the motions, thinking that's what makes me a Christian. If I go to church, or if I'm kind, or if I do this or that, or, or because I was baptized or married in, in Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, because I baptized, my, my children were baptized there, or because I've done this or because I've done that, if I read my Bible, or whatever, we think if we do good things, then that's going to ensure that we're Christians, But all of those things, if you haven't been converted, are simply apple nailing or apple stapling. They don't make you an apple tree. They can't. They're just ways that you convince yourself or others that you are an apple tree when you're not. And stapled apples eventually fall off and reveal the true nature of who you are. We all know if we walked up to a pine tree with a bunch of apples stapled on the branches, we wouldn't be deceived It's foolish to think that you can deceive yourself and others in the Lord. And so the question is, is my repentance bearing fruit? Has my life been changed? Again, not perfect. Repentance is always necessary because our repentance is never perfect. We're always in need of further change and further growth. But has my life been changed? Am I going in a different direction? When I look around me, Am I going the same way as everyone else? Or have I been changed? Do I have a new character? Am I brokenhearted over things that displease the Lord? So we just need to let that question settle on us. Is my repentance bearing fruit? And here's the good news. The solution to both questions, whether you need to repent for the first time or whether, whether you see a need for greater, more thorough life repentance the solution is the same. And the solution is to look to the king, to look to the one who is worthy, to look to Christ, to to behold the lamb who came was slain for his sheep. Because our inability to fix ourselves, our inability to repent perfectly and fully and completely was paid for by the lamb who laid down his life for us. And so no matter where you are on this spectrum Christ offers universal comprehensive mercy and forgiveness. And that is where you find the ability to change through Christ. Because either you need to be converted for the first time, which happens by turning to Christ and casting yourself on him fully, or you turn to Christ for the umpteenth time asking him to help you change. So lest you walk away thinking this is most fundamentally a message about getting yourself right, Hear me say, we are all dependent on God's sufficient mercy to make any progress. Christ is all. We aren't converted without sovereign grace given to us through Jesus Christ. We're not sanctified. We don't grow in our Christian life apart from sovereign grace given in Christ. Christ is all. And so we leave this passage remembering the king who has come and made a way for us. And we worship him for the salvation he's brought. Let's pray.